Hairy London by Stephen Palmer. Narrated by R.D. Watson. Episode 5 Thither too looked both pleased and perplexed. After a moment's thought, he said, It is yet early. I'm not sure what I could offer you, but do stay and take tea in the canteen with us. He glanced at an aquaboon. It's almost eleven. The canteen was a circular chamber decorated with jasper fortitude and set with wooden tables in the Turkish mode. On these tables, silver salvers saladated tea, which was collected rather slowly in porcelain divots, and from these divots they sipped, while goon-coated serving girls brought and proffered cherry scones. Jeremy noted how every girl wore the white hat of the caked. Decent spot of tea, he said. Then the two nodded. From Dan Jeeling in Indu, he explained. We own millions of slaves there. Remarkable. A short woman approached, then sat next to Thither too. This is Oxfordia Drome, he explained. Our most experienced anatomist. Pushing her hands through her salt and pepper hair, Oxfordia said, I studied comparative anatomy at Cambridge. Jeremy raised his eyebrows. He had no idea women were allowed to study science. Just the arts, surely. Remarkable, he murmured. Oxfordia is on the hairy team alongside me and some others, Thither too explained. I hope to discover the rooting mechanism of the hair, Oxfordia explained. Once these samples come back, if I can just find a few hairs with their roots still on, well, my job will be so much easier. Might we assist you? Jeremy asked. I'm sure there's something you could be doing, yes. But before Jeremy could reply, there came a thumping on the canteen door, the sound of raised voices and then a strangled shriek. They all jumped to their feet. Jeremy turned to see a fat, round-faced man enter the canteen, dressed in the silver-buttoned dark coat of a police officer. He wore a curtailed bobby cap, massive boots, and had a number of pairs of handcuffs dangling from his belt, jangling below his paunch like so many metal rabbits. The officer approached Jeremy. Uh, Mr. Panamile, is it? Yes. Mr. Jeremy Pantomime of Goff. Yes, yes, officer, what is it? Did my man McTavish sent you? Oh, I don't know. Who am I to say? Jeremy glanced in perplexed silence at Valentina, then gave a small shrug. What do you want with me? The officer took a notebook from his pocket. I'm Merchants and Volume of the Yard. I'm arresting you. Arresting me? What for? On suspicion of dealing in drugs. Drugs? What drugs? Opium, of course. Now, if you don't struggle, these handcuffs won't hurt. If you do, they will. It's your choice, Mr. Pantomile. Velvine, a member of the Suicide Club since its inception, 
knew how to pilot a bovine Archimedean floating system. The morning winds were strong and from the southwest, meaning that his hope of passing, even landing on, Bedwood's house was reasonable. What amazed him, though, was the state of London below. The streets were choked with hair, the buildings covered with hair, even the gardens and parks were her suit. He stared, unable to believe his eyes. But too soon he approached the strand, and too soon he passed over Kingsway. The winds veered to the south and strengthened, and he dared not descend for fear of crashing into a building. Already he floated over Hoban. Damn it, he shouted, as he overburned the heteryx to gain altitude. Over St. Pancras he floated until the winds eased and he was able to descend. But soon he saw Camden Town to his left and Kentish Town ahead. Too many buildings, too much danger. The Mashinora lowed as its stays creaked and the wicker capacity below it swung in the wind. But then he saw Highgate Cemetery wreathed in morning mist. He could land there at low risk to himself. Operating the other jets, he forced the Mashinora to descend until mist shrouded him. The temperature dropped and visibility was reduced to 20 yards, then 10 yards. With a jolt, the Mashinora hit the ground, the wicker capacity dragging into the earth, leaving plough marks like brown cuts in the green. Then, smash, straight into a mausoleum. Velvine jumped out, frightened that the heteryx would blow up. He hauled out the clay figure, then grabbed his belongings and threw them on the ground, leaping out of the capacity just as fire enveloped the heteryx. He could do no more. Ablaze, the Mashinora went up with a final despairing low and delicious smell of roast beef. Velvine collapsed to the ground, weeping, as the cumulative effect of his mother's declaration and his escape took hold, and now a brush with death and the loss of his precious Mashinora. It was too much for a gentleman to take. At length he stood up, putting his small belongings into his pockets and settling his rucksack more comfortably on his back. But, although morning progressed, the mists of Highgate Cemetery did not lift, and he began to worry, knowing the reputation of the place. Not even the locals dared enter it after sundown. He had no idea where he was, so he decided his best plan was to find a path, then follow it to the edge of the cemetery. Unwilling to relinquish the clay figure, he hauled it along as best he could. But soon he had to give up, the effort exhausting him, the hair growing from the earth too difficult to forge through. On a grave he laid the figure. A voice said, Who are you adding a body to my resting place? He span round to see the ghost of a man addressing him. Who, who, who are you, eh? he replied. I am George Eliot. Why have you burdened my grave with a new body? George Eliot, Velvine replied. I thought you were a woman. No, I was a man pretending to be a woman pretending to be a man. 
the ghost said. But you defile my grave. Why? I cannot carry this thing with me. It's too heavy. The ghost raised an arm, pointing to a group of tombstones in a great yew tree. Behind that yew is the groundsman's shed, it said. Look in there. Belvine did as he was instructed, peering into the shed and noticing a two-wheeled trolley which he took. Now you may carry your partner. Well, I, I suppose I should. Thank you, Belvine replied. Goodbye. More figures drifted through the mist as he walked on, but he ignored them all. Bushes got in his way, hedges blocked him, ivy grabbed his feet and tripped him, and still he found no path. The mist was chill, the light grey, no hint of the sun in the sky to give directions, and he knew he could be walking in circles. At last he stopped, tired, scratched, cold, hungry and annoyed. He had, of course, no food or drink. And there was another ghost staring at him, an old man, heavy beard, lined-faced, bent over and carrying a broadsheet. Velvine waved and shouted, Mr. Ghost, I need to locate a path out of the cemetery. Can you assist? He glanced down at his chronoplum and added, Three o'clock is near and I need tea. The apparition approached and Velvine recognised it as Karl Marx. Mr. Marx, he said, can you help me? I am no ghost. Marx replied, with something of a testy note to his voice. Oh, I'm sorry. A typical capitalist trick, killing me before I am dead. Velvine tried to stick to his plan. Can you tell me where to find a path out, if you please? I'll lead you out if you dare follow me. Velvine hesitated. Something about Marx's manner, about his phrasing, unnerved him. He sensed a trick. Follow you, eh? Yes, a man like you, with a modicum of what you Britishers called gumption, should be able to follow me. Well, I would prefer it if you described to me the route. Marx began to walk. Come along, it's really not difficult. With no other option, Velvine followed, pulling the trolley behind him, and soon he found himself walking on paving slabs, edged with blonde hair. You know the cemetery well, he said. Well enough, Marx replied. What are you doing here? Velvine described as best he could the purpose of the suicide club and Pantomile's wager, concluding, I find myself short of funds and so put my name forward. I mean to uncover the true nature of love and win the money. Ha! Marx grunted. A waste of time. You are a crippled man in a crippled society, journeying around your empire as if it were a playground, while the common person, the authentic person, struggles against the oppression of the upper classes. So you say, Velvine retorted, but uh, some of us who find ourselves through no fault of our own 
born into wealth, become philanthropists. An illusion. What use is some? You are alienated from everything in your world. You know nothing of real life, of poverty, of work, of struggle, of disappointment, of the crushing of opportunity. And here you are now, jousting with me and daring to tell me you seek the truth of love. You would not know love if it clung on to you with the passion of a young woman. Well, I think you exaggerate. All human beings can know love. Dash it, even that idiot pantomime believes so. All human beings who are authentic human beings may know true love. But how few of those live in London? How few... May not a man not be formed from his practice of life? asked Belvin. Surely his life creates him. Marx chuckled. <laughs> you have read Montesquieu, then, he remarked. If a person becomes active, productive, and independent, then, yes, they may be counted authentic. But it involves releasing themselves from chains of illusion. And you? Look at you. You wear clothes created from the subjection of the masses in Lancashire. Your chronoflam is gold removed from a foreign country that your king rules but has never visited. Your club is for the idle rich, employs servants who make the myriad delicacies upon which you feast, and all for a few pennies. Wager? <laughs> I wager this, that you've never done a full day's work in your life. I am a member of the Suicide Club. I work for my country. Marx laughed. Yes, when it suits you. And in countries like far-off Hindu, where the brown people you cut down and kill may be counted in their thousands, in your empire, sir, the blood never dries. Belvine said nothing. It occurred to him that it had been rather convenient working for the good of the empire when it suited him. No daily labour, that was for sure. But Marx surely was pushing the point too far. At last, he said, Mr. Marx, while a couple of your points may be good, your overall tone is dismissive. I will find the nature of love. And I see now, to do that, I will need to find the true nature of man. <laughs> of man, Marx chortled. What of woman? Well, I meant man as in... You mean men as the male gender. Admit it, I spoke of persons. Did you not notice? He laughed again. And you speak of finding love? Have you ever experienced love? Are you married? Well, uh, no, not yet, no, Velvine admitted. I am only 39, but these are not relevant points. They are each as relevant as the ludicrously expensive shoes you wear. Velvine was now beginning to regret discussing his life with the redoubtable Marx, and he was irritated that Marx had got so much correct having known him for little more than a few minutes. In a tone of decision, he said, I would make a wager with you, but you would not accept uh, lead me out of Highgate Cemetery. You can do that much out of common decency. I swear I shall go out into hairy London and uncover the true nature of love. I shall win the wager, then return here to tell you. Will you indeed? And if I am gone by then? 
I shall inform your ghost, Delvine shouted. He noticed that the main entrance to the cemetery stood before him. In a calmer voice, he added, Good day to you.